The greatest among you shall be a servant. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For whoever shall save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, good morning, Oakwood. We want to welcome you to a new series we're starting today called The Upside Down Kingdom. And this is part one, and so you are on the ground floor opportunity of studying God's Word together for the next several weeks. As we're starting this series, this series is going to take us right up to uh, Easter this year. And uh, we're going to be talking about statements that Jesus made and teachings that he gave that just seem to be contradictory to what the world says. Because many times it seems like the statements that Jesus made were somewhat paradoxical. Some of his teachings seem to go against the sense of the world. And throughout the ages, Jesus' followers have learned the ways of this upside-down kingdom. And they put them into practice. And in doing so, God is glorified in his people and his mission to save the lost. And that's being accomplished even to this day. You see, God's ways are different than man, man's ways. And, and all of us would probably say, yeah, I agree with that this morning. We would nod our heads and say, oh, oh yeah, I, I understand that. His ways are, are different. Most of us would say that we see the benefits of living for God in our life. We see the benefits of living according to his standards. But see, we make decisions. We live our lives, we do things, and we go about our own ways in life. And the, the way that we're doing life right now can seem right to us. You know, we may not be heading God's exact direction for our life, but, you know, we begin to think, hey, my life's okay. I'm, I'm heading in a decent direction. What's funny about that is that most people don't like their life the way it is now. But there's a verse of scripture that points out to us that we can be deceived even when we think we're going the right direction by our own decisions, by our own perception and understanding. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, there is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right, but its end is the way to death. I think that's so true. Sometimes the direction that we're going in our life, it seems right. But in the end, it's the way of death. So God has his own way. He has his own direction, and he wants people to go the direction that he set for their lives. And many times, uh, God's way seems backwards. It seems upside down. It seems complete opposite of how we've been programmed since we were younger children in life. Seems to be a, a contradiction to what the world says. This is a prime example as we begin this series is this idea from Jesus that in this upside down kingdom, the greatest is your servant. The greatest is your servant. The top person will be the bottom person, the best will be the lowest. The most valuable will be of the lowest esteem. Well, let's look at where we get this idea from the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Mark 
chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we're going to begin looking at verses 35 through uh, 45 this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible, I invite you to grab that Bible in front of you. Uh, turn it to page 846. And you can always follow along in our app. It has all the sermon notes and the scriptures right there for you if you have a tablet or your phone. Uh, just uh, search Oakwoodina, download the app, and just go to sermon notes, and you can find it all right there. As I was studying this this week, I really feel like it's important to kind of lay a foundation for what's going on before our selected passage this morning, just so we have a little context, and so we really understand what, to me, is a little bit shocking about what the disciples are going to do here. You know, the 12 disciples, Jesus' closest friends, they've been following him for about three years. If you, if you turn over to Mark chapter 11 uh, in your Bible, in the text there, it talks about the triumphal entry. So just to give you a little bit of timeline, this is hours, perhaps just a couple of days before uh, Jesus and the disciples are going to make the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which starts Holy Week. And so we're, we're just days from Jesus being crucified on the cross. We're just days from the upper room. And Jesus did a lot of teaching and, 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 and uh, had several confrontations that week as he, was, as he and the disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. But if you look in your Bible this morning, I don't know what it says in yours, but if you go back up in Mark uh, chapter 10 there to verse 32, mine has a subheading there, and my subheading says this, Jesus foretells his death a third time. Well, let's begin there this morning, just to give a little bit of context to what we're going to be reading in 35 through 45. It says, And they were on the road, this is Jesus and the disciples, and they were going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, the twelve disciples, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You see, Jesus is very specific here, and if you notice in the subheading there, it says that it's the third time that Jesus has shared with the disciples what's going to happen to him, and now they're just days away from it. Man, very serious, very somber. I wonder what happens next. What will the disciples be thinking about? Let's go to our text, John 10, 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Because, you know, you just told us that, that you're going to die, but you're going to raise again. And we're sure you're going to go to heaven to be with the Heavenly Father. You've been teaching us that for years. And so, so when you get there, well, you know, me and my brother, we're going to be on your right and your left. And Jesus answered them this way. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What Jesus was asking there is, are you able to handle the cup of suffering that I'm about to partake in? Or the baptism of persecution? He had just told him, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit upon, and I'm going to be killed. Can you drink of that cup? Can you be baptized with that baptism? And they said to him, we are able. Really? Really? 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, you can imagine that when the ten heard about it, they, they began to be indignant at James and John. I mean, think about the context here. <laughs> Jesus just shared that he's going to die. <laughs> he's going to be whipped and beaten, and they're going up to Jerusalem, and all this is going to happen. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and I'm sure this is just, just blowing their minds. And these two of Jesus' disciples are more concerned about their position in the future. And Jesus called all the disciples together as the ten others were indignant with James and John, Jesus called them all together and he said to them this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives them the answer. He's saying to them that the, my way and my kingdom is different than the world. This is an upside-down kingdom. And the way to glory in my kingdom is sacrifice and service and suffering. In this kingdom, exaltation involves making yourself low. It reminded me of the uh, table in Bible times. If you went to share a meal at a house, it always meant something, and there was a certain placement around tables. Now, these tables didn't have chairs, but there were certain positions. There was a place that was called the seat of honor. You have to understand that these tables, uh, they weren't sitting in chairs. They were always leaning. It says that they would recline at the table. So what they would do oftentimes is lean on one elbow and just kind of eat with the other hand. And so there were certain positions around this table, and it, it reminds me of like high school band. You know, you remember uh, when you're in band, you have first chair and second chair and third chair and fourth chair, and you know what that means, right? First chair is the one that's the best at playing that instrument. They've passed all the tests, and they're the most talented, and, and so, so that would be the first chair. And then the second chair would be the one that's just behind them. Uh, maybe they're just as talented, but they didn't do well in their playing test, or they didn't prepare as well. And, and so there's the second chair, and then you have the third chair, and it's these seats of honor. It's this pecking order that's around the table. And that's what these disciples are concerned about, is what is going to be the pecking order as you go ahead, Jesus? Can you believe it? <laughs> it seems like all of us, even at an early age, we get this messed up in our minds somehow. We, we get this idea that climbing the ladder of greatness and getting others to serve us, getting others to praise us, to look to us, not humbling ourselves, but exalting ourselves and bringing ourselves up is the way to go. Some people will do anything to claw their way and scratch their way to the top and have others under them. I'm curious this morning, how many of you watch Shark Tank? Anybody here Shark Tank people? Okay, good, lots of Shark Tank people. All right, I, I, I like that show. 
But I want to ask you a question this morning, considering, and, and I know in this new season they've had uh, many different entrepreneurial sharks on there, a lot of new faces and stuff. But of all the sharks that you have seen on the show, you've seen their personalities, you've seen the way they operate and their function. I'm just wondering, how many of the sharks on Shark Tank would you classify as a humble servant? You had the same reaction the first service had. It was just kind of like, really? <laughs> no, no, these people have humble servants. They have humble servants. They, are, they would never humble themselves. <laughs> in fact, they're some of the most prideful and arrogant people that I've ever seen on television. And yet we watch a show like that, and we watch them, and we say, hey, good job, man. You're a winner. Man, we, we, I mean, all of us want to be like them, right? We can be rich, and we can be famous, and we can have all of this stuff. And yet that's the complete opposite of the upside-down kingdom. We've we got to get the best. We've got to get to the top. We've we got to pursue, pursue the success, and, and, and we have to go after it. And it doesn't really matter what happens to other people along the way. We have just got to get there. Compared to 20 or 30 years ago, that's why there's many people today that have their six-year-olds on traveling t-ball and soccer teams. And they play 187 games a year. Why? It's because they have to be the best. They've got to climb the ladder of success. They have to have others look to them and offer them a scholarship when they're in third grade. And that's the way it goes. They've got to be superior. We push our kids to memorize their ABCs and to read before anyone else's kid. Why? So they can be smarter? No. It's so we can brag to our friends about, look how smart they are. Look at all the awards they get and the certificates and the trophies. Whatever it is for you, I don't want to just pick on sports, but it seems like we push and push and push to be successful and to be superior to others and to build ourselves up. Why do we want our kids to go to the most prestigious colleges and universities, to belong to the most prestigious civic clubs and organizations? It's to win awards and to win achievements and to get recognition by climbing the ladder of success. You want a better job. You want more money. You want a bigger office and a bigger title. Why? Because you are climbing the ladder of success in the world. And while the circumstances are different for each of us, I think the intention in our hearts is the same, that we are trying to climb. We are trying to ascend the ladder of success so that we can look good, so that we can feel good about ourselves, and so that we can somehow feel superior to others. And I think deep down inside all of us, we are fighting the sin nature of a superiority complex. I think it starts getting poured into us by our parents at a very young age that we are to be high achievers, and that's the only way you'll add up to something in this life. It's the only way, is if you achieve greatness, but on the world's terms. And we like to be on top, and we like to be the shark in the tank. So people look to us and say, wow, you are on top you truly have achieved greatness. And Jesus beckons to his disciples and he beckons to us today. Let it not be so among you. I want you all to be different. Because the greatest among you will be a servant. Now before we go on, I just want to clarify this morning that there's really nothing wrong with being successful. God wants people to be successful. We see it in Scripture. He commends hard work. He commends achievement. As long as the priorities of the achiever say, stay straight and aligned with his ways. You see, there are many characters in the Bible that it almost seems like God's bragging on them. 
but it's because their success and their hard work and their dedication were first and foremost to him and his upside-down kingdom, and it was never about building a kingdom to themselves. They never achieved their success at God's expense. They wouldn't put their worship on hold for a while or their service on hold for a while or God just until uh, three more years of this and then I've, I've got my achievement and then I'll serve you. No, it was just building up themselves and serving themselves all the way along. But in the Bible, the characters we see, they're servants, first and foremost, of the Most High God. And they achieve their success through sacrifice and service to God first. God was first, and God was most in their lives, and everything else seemed to take a back seat to that. You see, our aspirations as humans need to be wrapped up in our Creator's aspirations for us. And the goal of this world, let's just say it, the goal of this world is to ascend the ladder to be great. That is the message that we are sending. That is the message that we are programming in culture and in society today. The goal of this world is to ascend the ladder to be great at whatever cost you need to. Immorality, go for it. Go in the way of the world, go for it. You see, ascending the ladder can be done in many ways. But usually it falls into one of these four categories. Money, intelligence, ability, and beauty. You see, money, intelligence, and ability, and beauty is what the world values. That's how you become someone in the world. If you have lots of money and you get more money, you become rich. You're somebody. If you're really intelligent, you have a great mind, and you study, and you got all these degrees, and hang all these certificates on the wall, have all this recognition, and you're the valedictorian or whatever, it shows that you're intelligent. And if you have a special ability, if you can dribble a basketball or shoot or, or make a pass, or if you can you know, cheer and do flips and, and tumbles, or even throw a softball, or, or whatever it is, kick a soccer ball in a goal really, really well, or, or block something, or, or you know, run, a, run something for the Olympics. As long as you have this ability, then you're in. And if you're beautiful, if you have everything on the outside looking perfect, you can have decay on the inside. It doesn't matter. Money, intelligence, and ability, and beauty is where it's at. And when you have those out in the world, then you'll achieve accolades and compliments. You might even get a little bit of power and some recognition. And maybe even some sordid financial gain. But controlling and battling for a position of power in the world seems normal to us. But I think sometimes it even creeps into Christianity. It creeps into us as Christians in Christian circles as Christ followers. I mean, look at the context of our passage today that we just read. Jesus predicts his death. He gives details into what he will suffer. And what are the disciples concerned about? Who is going to sit on his right and his left? I don't know about you, but I read that, and it, it, it just makes me think they are so selfish. How selfish can these disciples be? And to us, we read that, and it's what? It's a turnoff. And yet, this is what the world values. This is what's rewarded in our world today. I'm reminded of someone else who struggled with ambition and, and wanting to be better and wanting to ascend the ladder to prestige and power, even to heaven, to raise his own throne right up there above God's. Listen to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, as we hear the story of Satan before he's thrown or while he's being thrown out of heaven. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who once laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. But Jesus beckoned Satan, and to all of us, but the greatest among you will be your servant. You remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan? Satan took him to a high place and offered him all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus knew that he was a humble servant. You see, the goal of a Christian needs to be to descend the ladder to be great. In the world, we ascend the ladder to be great, and the goal of the Christian is to descend the ladder to be great. In Matthew 23, 11 and 12, Jesus says this, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, it's the upside-down kingdom. It's the way of Jesus to be a humble servant of God. And for people to be great in the kingdom of God is to lower yourself and serve those around you. And you live your life serving others, looking for ways to descend the ladder. But you must first choose to be a servant. In Matthew 10, 42, it says this, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. There's going to be rewards in heaven for those that will even take a cold cup of water and give it to the littlest ones. Because he is my disciple. You see, I think there's a difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. It seems like when I choose to serve, I maintain control about who I serve, when I serve, and where I serve. I'm not completely surrendered to God in those moments. I serve on my terms and conditions. I don't have to humble myself because it's on my terms and conditions. Conditions, not God's terms and conditions. And I maintain control instead of giving God complete control. It reminds me of that song, uh, I think it's from the 80s, you know, that, that I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. How would, you, how, how would that sound in the Christian's life? Well, I would do anything for God, but I won't do that has a completely different ring to it, doesn't it? I'll do anything for God, but I might get my hands dirty there. That, that ministry makes me uncomfortable. I'm just not gifted in that way. I will leave it to others. But you see, when I choose to be a servant, it's a 24-7 proposition. I'm a servant all day, every day. I serve whoever, whenever, and wherever God has me. It's who I am. It's not just what I do. You may have seen it uh, when we do baptisms here at Oakwood. We have these t-shirts that, that people get to, to wear, and uh, it, it's kind of a souvenir and a, a remembrance of your baptism. And uh, some of our t-shirts, the black ones, they say, not a fan. It just says on the front, not a fan. And we get questions about that sometimes. If you haven't read the book or done the study, uh, you're like, what does that mean? And, it's, you know, it's kind of scary. You tell people it means that you're not a fan of Jesus. It's like, oh, not a fan of Jesus. Aren't we all supposed to be fans of Jesus? But on the back of that T-shirt, it says, fully devoted 
follower. Because that's what Jesus wants. He doesn't want fans. He had fans all throughout Scripture. I mean, as he did miracles and as he did teachings and his popularity grew, in the world's eyes, he was successful. And so all these crowds came to watch him. You might see a miracle. You're going to hear something you never heard before. He's got, he teaches so great and with such authority. And he, he, that seems like the power of God is on this guy. He's a, he's, a, he's a special man. And you might get a free lunch. You know, if you stay long enough, you might. might I heard he fed like 20,000 people one time. I mean, I mean you just, man, you, you got to go see Jesus. But these were fans. Because when the rubber hit the road, they were the same people that were yelling in Jerusalem, hey, crucify him. And Jesus says, I want you to be a fully devoted, lifelong follower of me. Fans don't impress the upside-down king. He's looking for people that will make a commitment. Followers follow so close to their rabbi, their teacher, they are covered by the dust of his sandals. And they are not afraid to get involved in his work, even if it makes them uncomfortable or forces them to get their hands and knees dirty. You see, followers descend the ladder of greatness and serve. Fans simply sit and observe. Now, if you and I are going to analyze your service this morning, would you class your, classify yourself as a person who serves, who sees a need and takes action? Or would you classify yourself as one who just sits back and allows themselves to be served? Do you kneel and serve, or do you just sit and observe? You see, Christ set the example for us when he descended from heaven to earth to serve. What did it say at the end of our passage this morning in Mark 10, 45? It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you see, Jesus is the king of an upside-down kingdom where servants are the greatest. We started this morning with Proverbs 14, 12. And it says, there's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right, but its end is the way to death. Which brings us to a couple of questions I think we need to consider this morning. Are you serving? Or are you being served? In God's church, are you a contributor to the ministry of the kingdom? Using your time, making a, a sacrifice of your time, using your talents, your abilities that God has given you, are you using those to serve the Lord? Are you one of those that just is being served by others, but you're not really contributing yourself? Another question, another way to think about it is, are you serving a kingdom that will last? Or one that in the end leads to the way of death. Servanthood may not bring you success in the world's eyes, but it will bring you success in the only eyes that really matter. Because the greatest is your servant. I think that's partly why Jesus was called the greatest of all. Do you remember what he did in the upper room of the disciples? It's found in John chapter 13. And if you read the Gospel of John, you read chapters 13 through 17, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it's just rich with teaching. 
And Jesus gets in that upper room just the night before he's to be crucified, and he has a lot to say to the disciples. But do you know how it starts in John chapter 13? He gets up to the upper room of the disciples. And they've all reclined at the table, and I'm sure that Jesus, being the rabbi, being the teacher of this group, being the leader, I'm sure that Jesus was the one that was seated in the place of honor. And Scripture tells us that Jesus got up from his place at the table, and he went over and he took off his outer garment and put on the garment of a servant, kind of tying almost like a towel type of linen cloth around his waist. And he filled a basin with water, and he began going around the table to the disciples, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, that was the job of the lowest person in the house. Remember how we were talking about the table earlier, and there was like first chair and second chair and third chair? Well, the lowest position in that room was always the servant. They were the ones that were, you know, running interference for the guests around the table. They'd bring the food, they'd serve the food, they'd clear the food. But one of the things the servant did many times in that culture was to wash feet before you reclined at the table. Now, do you remember why? It's because we weren't sitting in chairs with our feet on the floor and our feet below the table. We're leaning on one side, and so our feet are always next to the person going around the table. And because of the sandals worn at that time and the dusty roads in the Holy Lands, if you've ever been there and experienced that, the feet were often dirty. And so the servant would come and wash the feet of all those who entered as guests into the home, and then they would take their place at the meal. Didn't happen all the time. It depended on your household, how many servants you had. But it was a tradition in most households at that time to have the servant wash the guest's feet. But Jesus didn't say, servant, please wash our feet. He got up. He put on the garment. He poured the basin. And he went around and washed the disciples' feet. It was so shocking to them that Simon Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, said, Oh, Lord, you will not wash my feet. I mean, you're the Son of God. There's no way. You're not going to touch my feet. And Jesus tells him, Hey, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And he goes, Oh, well, then wash my feet, my hands, and my head as well. Because I want to be a part of you. But it's almost like in that moment in John 13, the disciples are saying, Why are you doing this? And Jesus is sending them a message. He's sending them a message and he's showing it with his actions loud and clear. And what is it? It's Mark 10, 45, the last verse of our scripture today. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, give his life, give his life, give his life, give his life as a ransom many and that is our king and that is our Lord our master and he beckons his followers to humble themselves because your servant is the greatest